section. I'm going to begin this morning by reading some scripture to you. Sometimes I'll start with something else, but I'd like to begin with the scripture this morning. It comes from John chapter 21, verses 7 and 8. This is a passage that probably most of you are somewhat familiar with, but John 21, verses 7 through 8, this is actually a part of the um, uh, the story that we're going to be looking at later in our service this morning. John 21, beginning in verse 7, says this, That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. I simply begin this morning with the question, how eager are you to see the Lord today? I believe today that the Lord wants to speak to us and he wants to minister to us. Sometimes I think we almost come, I mentioned during our prayer time, sometimes I think we almost come out of ritual because it's Sunday morning, we're supposed to be in church. How eager are you to meet the Lord today and to hear what he has to say? The story is told of a father collecting shells on the beach with his little girl. The father was looking for all the nice shells that were in good condition. And meanwhile, the little girl was picking up all the broken shells. When her little hands could hold no more shells, she turned to her father and said, Daddy, the broken ones are pretty too. I think God sees things the same way. What is your biggest failure Maybe it was brought about by something you said or maybe something that you should have said. Maybe it was a miscalculation on your part. Maybe it was simply because you didn't have the right tools to succeed. What I will assure you is that all of us have failed. In fact, if I were to attempt to list all of my own personal failures today, I would likely never get to the sermon. But I will say, that my greatest failures have all been connected to those times where my failure impacted the people whom I love the most. Maybe it was as a dad or as a husband, and I spoke without thinking, and in the process, I hurt my family members. Unfortunately, I am not the first to have such great failures, nor will I be the last. My guess is that most of us want to limit those failures at least as much as possible. We're not okay with falling short, and we should not be okay with it. But what if I told you that even those failures that caused pain and regret can be redeemed by God and turned into something good? That such failures don't have to define us but rather they can become stepping stones to even greater things. Well, it's true. God can use your greatest failure to produce even greater results if you will allow him to do so. Now, please understand, I'm not telling you that it's a good thing that you failed a lot. That would be nice if I could say that because then we wouldn't have to work at it. It just happened all by itself. That's not what I'm telling you this morning, but God can use 
your greatest failures to accomplish much good. In fact, that is exactly what God would do through countless heroes of the faith. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to spend some time talking about this for a little bit. It is often referred to as the faith chapter. It's a bit of a historical record celebrating individuals who demonstrated much faith and naturally became world changers, men and women whom God used and blessed. I find that interesting because the reality is these people, in many ways, they are messed up people. They weren't perfect examples. But the funny thing is that chapter 11 of Hebrews mentions only their victories and not their mistakes. That is because although God is very much aware of our shortcomings, he is also very much aware of what we will become. He knows who we are. He knows what he can do through us. In fact, a lot of the people that we read about in the Bible failed. Abraham, the father of faith and of the Jewish people, lied about his wife twice. His son Isaac did the same thing. Sarah, Abraham's wife, she laughed at the promise of God that she would bear a child in her old age, and then she denied that she had laughed. Jacob, he lied. Noah got drunk. Samson, he was immoral. Gideon was fearful. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and then committed a murder to cover it up. Elijah was deeply distressed. He didn't even want to live. Jonah, he ran from God. The disciples, they fell asleep when they should have been praying. And Simon Peter openly denied the Lord three times. We'll come back to Peter in just a few moments. Then there was Moses. He killed a guy. The historian Josephus believed that Moses was, Moses was being groomed to become the next Pharaoh. As an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, he wore royal robes and he ate the finest food in the world. He had everything. He was the prince of Egypt. But underneath those royal robes beat the heart of a man whom God would one day call to lead the people of Israel out of bondage. Moses was a reluctant leader perhaps because of his inadequacies, but also perhaps because of his own failures. He didn't want the job, but he got it. And when he was called to do something, he was willing to act. As a result, he discovered that God was more than enough for him. He knew the Lord was bigger than any problem that he would ever face. In this passage in Hebrews 11, tells us that Moses chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He had an easy way. Moses could have simply wrote it out and he would have been okay to just stay where he was. But God was calling him to something bigger. Moses knew his people were suffering. He simply could not live with that. And therefore, he decided to take action. I will say that Moses had the right idea, but he went about it in the wrong way. He would end up killing a man and burying him to cover it up, and then he would flee from Egypt in fear for his own life. 
Yet despite his flaws, despite his sins and his shortcomings, the Bible calls him Moses, the man of God. What else can be said? So often we look at our sins and we look at our failures, but God looks and he sees what can be. Moses failed, but he actually failed forward. That simply means that he learned from his sin and we need to do the same. Some people just do the same things over and over again. They make the same poor choices, fall into the same cycle of sin. They struggle with the same addictions and it just goes on and on and on and on. Years turn into decades and in many ways their lives become defined by those things, those failures. On the one hand, if you make a bad choice, whether it is sin or just a bad business decision, but you learn from it, it can become something valuable. That is failing forward. Now, we all fail in life. We have all sinned. We all face temptation. We all face various kinds of trials. We are not alone in the struggles of this life. But that does not preclude you or I from doing great things for the Lord. Moses was a murderer. Yet God would use Moses to change the world. Maybe you've said, God could never use me. He could never work through me, not after all the things that I have done, not after all of my, all of my bad habits, my bad character flaws. God could never use me. But the truth is that God loves broken people and he can change them. We see our flaws. We see our shortcomings, but God sees something different. He sees who we will be once we have surrendered our lives to him. We see a broken life, but he sees a life that can be put back together and used for his glory. A few moments ago, I mentioned the apostle Peter, and I want to come back to him for just a bit. He is one of the most well-known disciples, and this portion of scripture and this portion of his story is found in John chapter 21 and also in Acts chapter 2, we'll actually refer back to John chapter 18 a little bit today as well. But before I get into the actual scripture reading, let me confess that it seems a little bit odd to talk about Peter as a failure. He is one of the most notable of the disciples for many reasons, not just because of one, but for many reasons. He's the one whom Jesus declared Upon this rock, the name Peter, Petra, literally means rock. And Jesus said to him, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's the one who demonstrated incredible faith, asking Jesus to call out to him on the water. And then Peter would walk on the water with Jesus. And in Matthew 16, 16, when all the other disciples were hesitant to even give an answer to Jesus' question of, who do you say that I am? It was Peter who declared that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And even today, he is noted as perhaps one of the most influential persons in history, not just among the disciples. 
So how can we also call him a failure? The reality is, just as Peter would become one of the most accomplished and recognizable disciples for his success, he would also be incredibly notable for his failures. What kind of failures are we talking about? For the most part, we would probably define these failures as acceptable or at least understandable, yet they are still failures. Please note that what I'm about to share is not an exhaustive list of his failures, but here are a few of his failures. To begin with, last week I shared from one of the parables of Jesus, the parable of the sower. On multiple occasions, Peter would need Jesus to explain these parables to him because he simply didn't get it. The parable of the sower was one of those parables that needed explanation. Again, it's an understandable thing. It's merely a failure to understand. Another example occurs in Mark chapter 10. On this occasion, it would be Peter and the other disciples who would try to keep children from coming to Jesus. Their understanding of Jesus was incredibly off base. He longed for the children to come to him, but they thought he was too important to deal with these little ones. And in Matthew chapter 14, I already mentioned that Peter walked on water with Jesus, which sounds like a great thing. Nobody else did it. But what started out with so much promise actually turns into a great moment of fear. As Peter will take his eyes off Jesus and begin to notice the wind and the waves, and he would begin to sink. Last week, we talked about how deep we were willing to go. Well, I have no idea how deep he went into the water that night. But as he cries out to the Lord for help, Jesus reaches out and helps him back into the boat. Later, in both Mark and Luke, we see a dispute that arises among the disciples. They're arguing over which of the disciples is the greatest. Now, it never clearly defines which disciples participate in this debate, other than to say that James and John were among those who did so. But they probably were on the same side of the debate. But it's safe to say also that Peter was probably a part of that conversation that day. He certainly thought very highly of himself. In fact, it was Peter's pride that caused him to speak up at times when he would have been better off just sitting back and enjoying the event. In Matthew 17, we see what is known as Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. On this occasion, Peter, James, and John are witnesses to an encounter with Jesus as he is joined by both Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament heroes. The significance of these two other figures is for another sermon, but I want to focus on Peter's response for a moment. Instead of simply enjoying the moment and being honored that the Lord would allow him this privilege, he feels the need to become relevant to the event He says to the Lord, Lord, if it is good for us to be here. And then he suggests that he should build a shelter to honor this occasion, one for each of the three figures. I guess at times my pride has probably caused me to desire relevance unnecessarily as well. Then the greatest failure moment in Peter's life is, of course, what we're going to look at today. 
Peter had declared his allegiance to Jesus. Even if everyone else abandons you, I'll be faithful. In fact, I'd be willing to die for you. But there was only so much truth to that statement. The reality is that on the very night that Peter made that statement, the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter would deny Christ on three occasions. In fact, he would be so adamant in his denial that he would declare to not even know the man. Talk about a failure. Jesus was supposedly his best friend. Peter had left everything to follow Jesus around. They had been together for three years. Jesus was the very same man who had healed Peter's mother when she was sick. Yet here Peter is denying that he even knew the man. The worst part is that Peter immediately recognized his own failure. We're told in John chapter 18 that having heard the rooster crow, Peter went away and he wept bitterly. Jesus had warned him that this would happen. Remember, even if everyone else turns away, I will be faithful. Even if everyone else runs, I love you more than everyone else. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows tonight, you will have denied me three times. And that's exactly what happened. Peter went away and he wept bitterly, having been warned of what would take place, even though Peter was so confident that he would be faithful. In the days that would follow, Jesus would be brutally beaten, tirelessly mocked, and crucified on a criminal's cross. And all the while, Peter was constantly being reminded that the last thing he had done for his best friend was to deny ever knowing him. Can you imagine the guilt and the shame and the regret that he bore over those days? Likely blinded by grief and anticipating that the story of Jesus was over, Peter would do the same thing that many of us would probably do. Let's just move on. In John 21, verse 3, Peter declares, I'm going fishing. This was a logical path. He was a fisherman prior to meeting Jesus. And and then this following Jesus thing clearly had not worked out the way he had planned, so why not go back to fishing? In fact, a handful of other disciples joined him as well. But this is the moment that would change everything for Peter. After hours of fishing, sulking in their sorrow and their failure, they have apparently been away from fishing for far too long. They've been fishing all night, And they haven't caught a single thing. So listen to the encounter that follows in John 21, beginning in verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of the fish. Now, I would imagine that this whole encounter kind of hurts their feelings just a little bit. We are professional fishermen, but we're having to take orders from some guy on the seashore on how to fish. But nothing that they've done has worked. So they do as they're instructed. 
The catch is overwhelming so much so that they aren't able to bring it in. But this is an especially interesting event simply because it's not the first time something like this actually happened. Back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus has actually been preaching, and as he's been preaching, he has pushed off in Peter's boat to be able to project vocally to the crowd. He's sitting in Peter's boat. Peter has fished all night, and Jesus gives some instructions to Peter. Put out into the deep water. This is Luke 5, verse 4 through 6. Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. I'm actually beginning to think that Peter really wasn't that good of a fisherman. At least two occasions where he fished all night and didn't catch a single thing. And only by miraculous intervention did he ever catch anything. Well, here we are again. The man on the shore, here in John chapter 21, the man on the shore is telling Peter and the other disciples where to fish. And it works. Suddenly it clicks with John. I imagine that others were thinking about it. But it was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who speaks up. And look at the next few verses. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land but about 100 yards off. As I read that passage, I can't help but wonder why Peter was so eager to get to the shore. I mean, hadn't all the disciples abandoned Jesus on the night of his arrest? And wouldn't they all be excited to see this man whom they knew had already died? Of course they would. But Peter had some unfinished business that he had to address. Now who knows what was said before the other disciples get to shore. After all, it was just Peter and Jesus for a short time. But in the recorded conversation that ensues, Jesus never directly brings up Peter's betrayal. But he does bring up the issue of whether Peter truly loves Jesus. And it's likely because of what Peter had said previously. Even if everyone else would betray you, I will be faithful. The idea is that I love you more than these. As Peter responds with transparent grief, likely revealing the burden of grief which he had been carrying for many days, Jesus simply says, feed my sheep. Now, I don't know what everyone else perceives this conversation to have looked like. But I am highly doubtful that this was some polished conversation absent of emotion. Instead, I picture Peter with a sense of excitement over Jesus' presence, over the possibility that he could make things right between he and the Lord. But I also imagine him almost afraid to look Jesus in the eye. 
back in Luke 22 when Peter denied Christ. We are told that just as Peter denied Christ for the third time, Jesus turned and looked at Peter and that Peter's response was to go away and weep bitterly. In other words, Jesus knew what Peter had done. Peter knew that Jesus knew. This encounter likely would have included some laughing and celebration, but it also would have included many tears. I suggest to you that this was a conversation that Peter desperately needed. He needed to know that he had been forgiven by Jesus Christ. And we need to know the same. Listen, I've already told you that all of us have sinned. We have all failed. And when we do sin, we cannot just sweep it under the carpet as if it didn't happen. But what we can do is to come before the Lord with a repentant heart that says, I don't ever want to be in this position again. Repentance is a necessary step in order to fail forward. And by the way, as we've talked about before, repentance is more than just confession. It is a change of heart and a change of direction. Even among these heroes of the faith that I started with this morning, we see this same pattern. For example, Rahab was one that is listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Did you know that after she is welcomed into the nation of Israel, after she has rescued the spies, there is never a suggestion that she participated in prostitution again. I know she's noted as Rahab the prostitute, but she was not a prostitute once she became a part of God's people. It's because she was a changed person. Or consider David. When his sin was addressed, he repented, asking for mercy from the Lord. And Noah, the same missionary who ran from the opportunity to go and preach to Nineveh, to preach a message of repentance to Nineveh, would become one of the most effective evangelists in the Old Testament, with an entire nation turning to the Lord because of his testimony. The point is that repentance is a necessary step, not just for Peter, but for David, for Rahab, for Noah, and for you and me. Repentance is a necessary step if we are to fail forward. The final thing that I want you to see today is that having repented of our sin, having our failures redeemed, there is hope for tomorrow. And that hope is found in a spirit-filled life. In Peter's case, it would be on the day of Pentecost that the Spirit of God would move upon him in a mighty way. This man, same man who denied Christ in fear for his life, would stand up and boldly proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah. And he would call upon a crowd of thousands to join him in repentance. Initially in Acts chapter two, we see that the believers had gathered together all in one accord when the spirit of God came down upon them. The result was that the place where they were staying was shaken. 
And the sound of something like a mighty rushing wind came through there. And then tongues of fire rested upon each of the believers and the people began to speak in what has been become known as the gift of tongues. I think personally we should actually call it the gift of ears. As Peter and the other disciples spoke in known languages and people from other countries were able to suddenly understand them in their ears, in their own language. But that's another message. Well, immediately these believers get mixed responses. Acts chapter 2 verse 12 says that, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? They're basically saying, Wow, this is amazing. We haven't seen this before. This was not normal. Then you also get an interesting response there in verse 13. It says, but others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They're actually trying to insult them. What? These people are crazy. This is something that's odd and unusual. What makes this interesting is that wine had always been a symbol of the Spirit's presence. Do you remember Jesus telling the parable of the old wineskins. In Mark chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, Jesus says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No. They pour new wine into new wine skins. In this parable, most theologians will tell you that the new wine is representative of a new spirit that is being poured out on us when we surrender our lives to Christ. And the new wine skins represent the fact that we are changed not only on the inside, but yes, even on the outside. In other words, our choices, our actions on the outside should reflect the presence of a new spirit that is dwelling within us. So the believers are mocked for supposedly having new wine within them. And what they didn't know was they were right. These new believers did have a new wine within them, and it was the Spirit of God. Amen. Did you know that John Wesley actually experienced a little bit of this? Actually, the name Methodist was intended as an insult. As a student, he believed very much that the people of God ought to be very intentional in their studies of the Word, in the way they lived their lives. So he set up a routine and he actually shared it with all of his followers. And the people around them began to call them Methodists as an insult. And John Wesley actually liked it. So the name stuck and that's how they got that name. You know, sometimes when people mock us for living godly lives, God can use those for good things. The result in our passage the result would be more than just cool things like tongues of fire coming and resting upon people. It would also include this powerful and bold message from Peter. In verse 14, we read that Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. 
men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. First thing I'll point out from that verse is it says that Peter stood up with the rest of the 11. The rest of the 11 knew Peter. They knew what Peter had done. They knew the failure that had been present in his life, yet they willingly stood alongside him because they knew there was something different about Peter. It was the presence of the Spirit of God in him. This is the same man who just wanted to slip into the background previously, but now he is calling on the people to listen to my words. That's because this man who knew failure so intimately has moved from failure into repentance and into victory. And what was it that made the difference? It was the Spirit of God within him. I want you to know today that it is the same Spirit that can give you victory if you want it. And I do emphasize the phrase, if you want it. The truth is that far too many believers are content with their sin or their compromise. And I'm going to give you some examples. I'm going to tell you ahead of time that some of you will not like some of what I'm about to share. And I do not apologize for it. There are many believers who are content with sin in their lives, and we ought not to be so. Pornography. It is a sin that objectifies women, diminishing their value and the value of real women in their life. But the argument that many make is that at least I'm not hurting anyone. But you are. The success of the pornographic industry has killed countless marriages and it has perverted millions of young minds. It is not okay. But there are some that really don't want out of pornography. Many years ago, I was at a conference with a bunch of pastors. I was a youth pastor, but it wasn't just youth pastors. This conference was just for pastors. They did an anonymous survey. They had us write on a note card the answers to questions, no names. We passed them all in. There were hundreds of pastors there. Over 90% of the pastors that responded admitted to looking at pornography at least, at least once over the previous month. Do you recognize how destructive pornography can be? Yet we have justified it because, well, other people do it and it's not really hurting anyone, but it is, and it dishonors the name of the Lord. Alcohol. I know that there are examples in Scripture where people clearly drank wine, and I know that alcohol is a legal substance. And I know that there are many Christians who don't have any problem with the use of alcohol, but I want you to hear the other side of it for a moment. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul said, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. The use of alcohol would certainly fit this statement. On an annual basis, the drug that has caused the most deaths in America for decades, not just last year, for decades, is alcohol. I know the media will actually tell you something different, and they'll tell you it's meth or it's fentanyl or something else like that. 
But the reality is the drug that has caused the most deaths in America is alcohol. I know a part of that is alcohol-related traffic accidents, but there are many other factors that go into it. Why would you put yourself in a position to compromise yourself with something that you know has the potential to kill you? In addition, for many, alcohol has become the escape from reality or stress, a way to avoid what they're going through. But you know what? When you sober up, what you're going through is still there, or it has become so common that it's just something you do. In order to fit in, we'll just drink a glass of wine or, or a margarita or whatever else is available. But for many, what starts out as social quickly turns into something that will dominate their lives. If only they had abstained from the first drink, they might never have run down the road of alcoholism. And finally, one of the most destructive aspects of alcohol is seen as in its impact upon others. I made a commitment many years ago to abstain from alcohol, not just because I am a leader in the Wesleyan Church, although the Wesleyan Church does still very openly say that it is wrong. I made the decision not to drink alcohol because I did not want to become a stumbling block to anybody else. It may be a recovering alcoholic who sees me do it and is sucked back into their old habits with the idea that if Pastor Mike can drink a little alcohol, then I can too. It's not that big of a deal. That is a big deal because the last thing I ever want is for someone else to walk down that road simply because they saw me do it. Maybe it's not one of you. This is me as a young man trying to process why I will not drink. What if one day my children were to learn that such habits are acceptable only to see their lives destroyed by alcohol abuse? I grew up in a household. By the way, the Lord moved miraculously in my mom's life, but I remember before we became a part of the church. I will tell you that my dad died a very young death, and it is primarily because of the fact that alcohol and drug abuse were a normal part of his lifestyle. It would have been very easy for me, my brother and sister, to simply follow in his footsteps. I'll tell you the truth, I want my kids to follow in my footsteps, but I don't want them to follow down that path. I want them to follow Jesus Christ. I will say, in years of ministry, I have seen individuals who have allowed their habits like alcohol to destroy them, and I have seen others who have found victory over them. We had an individual, when I first went into ministry, I was in Burlington, North Carolina, great church, great people, had a great team of leaders that were a part of our ministry. We had eight sponsors who worked with the youth ministry with me, and they were fantastic. Probably one of the most gifted among those youth sponsors was a young man named Tim. Tim had a magnetic personality. People loved being around him. He was really good with the kids. But the truth is, Tim had some issues that we were unaware of. One day, I was out with a group of teenagers. We had gone to lunch. Uh, the kids were out of school for some reason. It must have been during the summertime. But I can still remember pulling up behind Tim 
our youth sponsor. And I recognized him right away, as did several of the other teens, but he did not see us behind him. Just as I went to blow the horn to get his attention, I saw him flick a cigarette out the car window. My first thought is, oh, I hope nobody else saw that. And the teen sitting beside me says, did he just flick a cigarette out the window? (laughs) I said, I'm afraid so. The next day I had to meet with Tim and to share with him that his lifestyle choices could not continue if he were to continue to work with our youth ministry. Some of you are saying, but he was just smoking a cigarette. Listen, if those young people ever thought that that was okay, then I would not be okay with that. If they saw it in their volunteers and they were okay with it, that would be a problem. So I had to address the issue with Tim. And Tim, unfortunately, decided that he was not ready to give up the smoking. I will tell you that, in, unfortunately, in the following two years, Tim's life would completely fall apart because the issue of smoking was minimal compared to some of the other things that were going on. He would actually end up in prison. Uh, he was dealing with a drug addiction that nobody knew about. He would eventually attempt to sell his own little girl to trade her for drugs. I could not be okay with him being the example for my kids. I had another guy. This is a much different outcome. Uh, He came to me. He had been a part of our church for a couple years, and he felt the Lord called him to be a part of our youth ministry. So he came to me, and I I said, man, I'd love to be able to meet with you and talk about it. We sat down, and we talked about what that would look like and some of the responsibilities he'd have working with the youth. And I said, there is one other thing that I need to address, because I had been to their house many times before, and I was very much aware of some of the habits that were present in the household. Individuals said, well, okay, what what is it? And I said, well, I noticed that y'all have alcohol in your home. We're sitting on their couch, and I just shared that the Wesleyan Church has already made a statement that alcohol is not to be a part of those who are in membership at that time. Now they've changed it to where it's just those who are in any type of leadership. I said, if you're going to work with our young people, you're going to have to commit to not drinking alcohol. He paused, and he was considering what I had just shared with him and he looked back up and he said, Pastor, I believe in the ministry of this church and I believe that God has called me to be a part of this youth ministry. And if that means I need to give up drinking alcohol, then I will give up drinking alcohol. He got up off the couch, walked into his kitchen, pulled out the wine and the beer and poured out every single bottle or can that he had that day. You don't have to be enslaved by the things that you've been enslaved with before. Pornography, alcohol. We'll move it indoors just a little bit. Gossiping and complaining. At my church, at an old church, we had a wedding one Saturday and most of the people involved with the wedding were not associated with the church. As a result, the next morning as we prepared for service, there were several cigarette butts that were found on the ground outside the church. Immediately, one of our longtime members of the church came to me complaining. We shouldn't be letting people use our church if they can't take care of it. I listened for a few moments and then simply posed a question. 
Which is more destructive to the church? Cigarette butts on the ground from those outside the church or arguing and complaining from those inside the church? Y'all know what the answer is. She did too. In fact, she got a little bit bothered and she walked away. About 10 minutes later, she returned to apologize for complaining. She then walked outside and began to pick up the cigarette butts. And each cigarette butt she picked up, she said, I will pray for the individual who tossed that cigarette butt on the ground. What I want you to understand is that none of these items, whether it be pornography, alcohol, or gossiping, or about a million other things that you could probably find, none of them are greater or worse than another. They are all sin, and they are all destructive to the physical body as well as even the spiritual body of Christ. They do not belong in your life or mine. Know that if you want it, the Spirit can set you free from all of these things and more. The question today is, do you want it? Do you want to be just like everyone else or do you truly want to be set apart as someone who is holy, someone who represents the Lord himself? I want it. Sign me up. My prayer is that each of you will desire for the same thing. I know I'm late today, but I I still feel like I need to pray. If you will bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, I pray that each individual in this room would long for the exact same thing that we're talking about. That we would no longer be okay. That we would no longer be able to accept sin being present in our lives. Any type of sin. Any type of compromise. Father, we confess we have all fallen short And even now, as I pray, there are thoughts that go through my mind of areas that I have fallen short in. And my guess is there are others that are more aware than even I of our own failures. Father, I pray today that you would forgive us of our sin. Lord, I pray that a heart of repentance would wash over us that we would be able to turn away from that sin so that no longer could we Be satisfied with where we've been. Father, I pray that we would be changed. And I do pray that you would do great things through us, not because of how good we become, but because of the Spirit's presence in us. Lord, set us free and empower us to do incredible things that we never imagined possible. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, I do feel led to at least ask you to respond. Maybe today you would say, Pastor, I have allowed an area of compromise in my life and it is time to make it right. I want you to pray that God would give me the strength to walk away from compromise. If you would just raise your hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Father, right now I pray that each individual who has just raised their hand, that you would empower them to leave this sin in their rearview mirror. Father, I pray that you would grant forgiveness. 
And I pray that from this moment forward, these individuals will each be able to walk with a confidence in knowing that you are the one who sets us free. Set us free today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us today. I do want to encourage you. There are tables that are in the back. I mentioned it earlier. We're actually going to be setting up tables out in the, underneath the awning as well for individuals to stop by. I encourage you, stop by and sign up for a ministry that you'll get involved with. Such a blessing to have you today. Go in peace.